0: Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. In the world of ski and ski boot design, Tor Verdonk is well-known and very well-respected. So, I talked to Tor about his background, his 25 plus year career with the Rosignol Group, and how he came to be the global brand director for Lang. Then, we discussed the history of ski design and ski boot design, including the pendulum swings we see in the ski industry, what Tor thinks were the biggest advancements in skis and ski boots in the past 25 years. We talk about his work on the development of the incredibly influential Rossignol S7, and we get Tor's predictions about what the ski industry will look like 10 years from now. And if you'd like to hear Tor break quite a bit of news and talk about the new for next season Lang XT3 ski boot and the future of Lang, you should definitely check out episode 83 of our Gear 30 podcast that we aired just this past Friday. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Tor. Well, Tor, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing great today, Jonathan. Thanks
1: for asking. Uh, I'm actually in Salt Lake at my home, which is a rarity (laughs) since I'm normally on the road, but you caught me at home today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Um, We got a lot of ground to cover. And so, you know, that's my task with you, cover a lot of ground, basically. So I want to try to personally get Clearer on your background and backstory here, we can kind of start by saying, I believe I have this right. You took a new a new position at Lang maybe two years ago. What is your official title? Uh, my official title is Global Brand Director for Lang. So uh,
1: two years ago, I was asked by our president to take over the whole Lang brand, everything from product, product development, marketing, um, the whole bit. So. I think I'm one of the first Americans to run one of the European brands, so it was a challenge I had to take at that point.
0: So does this mean that you are spending quite a bit of time in Europe these days when you say you're traveling a lot? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. I, I more or
0: less work in Europe and commute
1: from Salt Lake City, so I spend a lot of time on the airplane, but I spend uh, probably about 60% of the year in Europe at this time mostly focused in Belluna for the product development type of stuff. And then uh, France is where my marketing team is and, you know, finance and whatnot.
0: Now, backing up off of that. So your current position, you've been in it two years, but you've actually been with the Rosignal group for, is it like a hundred years now?
1: <laughs> Not quite. It feels like it sometimes. Um, no, it's about 26 years. I started with Rosignol in uh, 1994 uh, in the race department.
0: Okay, in the race department. So my goal now is to talk about basically from your birth to 1994. <laughs> that's a part of the. That's a part of the story that I don't know quite as much. Let's maybe start with your name. I think this might be the coolest name in the ski industry, Tor Verdonk. That's not exactly a run-of-the-mill american name so what's the story here
1: uh well i'm actually first generation american my my parents immigrated from holland the netherlands of all places as flat as as flat as a pancake could be and i end up in the ski industry (laughs) um but my parents moved here uh, about two years before i was born um my dad had never skied coming from Holland and uh, moved to Indianapolis originally and kept seeing ski magazines with pictures of Vermont. So he, he as soon as the opportunity he could, he took a job because he was inf- infatuated with this concept of skiing. And uh, I started to learn to ski at about three years old already.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, so you grew up in Vermont. I did. I grew up in Vermont. Uh, outside of a few years
1: in Europe, uh, my dad worked for IBM at the time, and he bounced back and forth between Europe. So I did spend uh, two years when I was uh, 14
0: and 15 in Germany. Talk a bit about then how old were you when you first started skiing? And tell me a little bit about like, when was it that like you really sort of fell for the sport yourself?
1: well my my dad started me skiing at a small little resort or not it wasn't even a resort it's a one lift uh t-bar place in vermont that's since been closed um i he started me at about three years old i absolutely hate it and cried constantly until <laughs> i was about five from what he tells me and at one point i turned to him and said let's go again let's go again and then apparently i fell in love with it and uh You know, I started ski racing, um, a little bit later than, than some probably at about 12 years old. Um, and that's probably where I really caught the bug and just became infatuated.
0: So I want to talk a bit about your sort of racing career. So you start getting into racing at 12. What disciplines were you most attracted to in racing?
1: I was actually not that good of a ski racer, to be honest with you. Um, I became a much better skier when I quit ski racing and started. (laughs) Coaching, um, but I was in love with the sport. I mean, I wasn't bad, but you know, my situation was uh, my parents immigrated here, kind of self-made man. My dad was, um, so he really believed in schooling. So when I, you know, and got to the high school point, and I really wanted to go to a Burke Mountain Academy or Green Mountain Valley School and chase this racing dream, my parents wouldn't let me. So I, w- I was in public school, and I skied out of a small little resort uh, on the more or less the backside of Stowe called Smuggler's Notch. Um, great resort. Um, great memories there. Uh, we always called it the dark side, you know, the, the sunny side was over there in Stowe. Uh, <laughs> and we were kind of the little, uh, the littler area. So I raced weekends out of there. And if I kept my grades up, I was able to ski one day during the week in the afternoons. Um, so I never really got a chance to put everything into it. Um, that maybe some other kids had the opportunity to, but, um, it was my, my focus. It, all through my high school years.
0: Well, you know, as a fellow graduate of a public high school, you know, I'm just here's to public high schools. And, you know, I I think we're doing okay. So we're doing great. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so coaching is when you say things really sort of picked up. I mean, just in your own words here, right? I mean, you're saying that's when you kind of, I think you just said became a better skier. Talk about that process. What type you're, you're still coaching racing at this point.
1: Yeah, um when when I went off to college, I wasn't good enough to to race in in college. I wanted to get out of Vermont. I wanted to be out west, so I went right away to University of Colorado in Boulder. Um again, I wasn't good enough to be on that ski team because they were so strong. Um so this is where I fell in love with more of the free ride style of things. Um and I spent only spent 2 years at University of Colorado. Um I kind of always joke that I spent my freshman and freshman year there. <laughs> um, Uh, But I skied a lot. I didn't go to class a lot. And, um, you know, during the Christmas breaks, um, I started coming back to Vermont and spending that month and a half off back in Vermont and started coaching at our club. Um, at the Smuggler's Notch Club, and this is really where I started to, I don't know, study skiing a little bit more to kind of get into the to the body movements and more of the technical aspect, and this is how I became a, a better skier for sure. Um, and then I got quite fast. I actually wish I would have had that kind of drive to focus on it more technically and body movement wise. Um, back when I was in high school, I think I could have been a lot better racer.
0: What year are we, where are we kind of in this story, when you're talking about being back coaching at, at Smugglers, where, what year?
1: Oh, I guess that would have been about 87, 1987 when I started coaching.
0: So what happens between 87 and 94 when you start working with the Rosignal Group? What's going on for those years? <laughs>
1: Um, Well, in the summers, I was a bike mechanic. Um, I was really into the bike world. Um, After I finished college, I wasn't sure whether I was going to go bike world or ski world for me quite yet. I was really into the bike world, uh, you know, everything from building wheels to actually even building my own frames, uh, brazing and welding frames. Um, But the ski side is still just kind of had the stronger hook um this is probably where i started to develop like i was a tinker. i've always been a tinker. i was when i was a kid as well uh being a son of a engineer i suppose um and uh during those years in coaching i just and, and really thinking about body movements and equipment i i was just a big tinker mostly on boots at this time but also being really proficient in tuning and 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 on skis so This is kind of, I guess, what what blends blends me um, into where I am today, where I really started to kind of get that feeling and touch for product. Otherwise, uh, you know, I went to school at, you know, I left CU and went back to Vermont, took a year off, um, worked full-time as a coach, and then I actually went back to school at the University of Vermont. Um, But I went to school Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I coached five days a week outside of that. So... Um, I was, you know, the club I was at with smugglers notch, we didn't really have a full time program, so we weren't on snow every day. So we set the schedule to, to race Saturdays and Sundays and, um, train, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, if kids could be available.
0: Before we keep moving forward on the ski stuff, um, I want to back up and just for a second on the bike side, were you ever like racing bikes, or this was just something that you just got in and were geeking out a bit on the bike side for just for kicks.
1: Um, I, I, I I would not classify myself as an aerobic ninja. Let's put it that way. (laughs) I'm not, (laughs) so, um, uh, I'm a powerful guy, so I really enjoyed crit racing. Um, I never got much past Cat 4, I did it more for fun. Um, I was really kind of on the front side of the mountain bike uh, uh, world when mountain bikes were really kind of just starting to come, you know, into the market. Um, Again, I'm a super mechanical person, so I just love working on stuff and that seemed like a better job to me than working at the Gap or I don't even know if the Gap existed at that time. but you understand what I mean in yeah. high school. So I was a bike mechanic already at 14, um, working at a at a great shop, the Ski Rack in Burlington, Vermont, uh, and spent all my years in the summers there. They, they were also a ski shop, mostly focused on Nordic. But in the wintertime, I wanted to be on snow. So I preferred coaching in the winters rather than being in a shop.
0: Are we ready to talk about 1994? Yeah. How does this come about? How do you start working with Rossi?
1: Um, well, it was a little bit of persistence on my part. Um, you know, I wasn't, I I knew, I think already in high school or college that I wanted to work for a ski company. Um, I didn't know how I was going to get there, especially coming from, you know, race, racing, ski racing was my passion. So I really wanted to do a job in ski racing to start out, um, and the, the race rep for Rosnall at that time was Randy Graves and... Uh he was a big bike enthusiast, oddly enough. So um, I kind of knew who he was. I slid up to him when I was a coach at Smugglers. You know, again, remember, I'm from this little small club. Most of the race guys only talk to the, the big clubs, right? The, the Burke Mountain Academies and the Ski Academies of so sorts. And I just introduced myself to him. We got chatting about bikes and mentioned that I was a bike mechanic. And then he started bringing his bike to me. And we just created a relationship then Randy actually moved on to be product manager for Rosnall and they were looking for a race guy. So that's how I got the call. Um, I don't think my interviews went all that well, um, <laughs> because I didn't quite have the res racing resume that, that I think they wanted to see. Um, but they took a chance on me and, um, th- that's how it all started. I got a call, uh, in October and I started two weeks later.
0: Okay. I want to, I want to ask you about this then. So, you say they maybe would have liked to see a bit more in terms of the race resume, but they did offer you the job. So what do you think maybe you said in the interview or over a series of interviews that motivated them to give you that chance?
1: Uh, I think first off, it's probably, it was probably my mechanical skills um, in that sense. And, you know, any, any good mechanic is a great problem solver, so um, I believe that that's probably the number one thing. Um, and, of course, my personality, right? <laughs>
0: exactly. I was, I was just hoping you'd come around to that. Yeah, the charm, just the natural charm. Um, we, this is probably the moment when we should give a shout-out to Nick Castagnoli, who we both decided is just kind of a grumpy jerk. Um, and is maybe attempted to pigeonhole you as, you know, a grumpy jerk yourself. I think we've both come around toward to saying that this is more a reflection on Nick, um, than, you know, a proper characterization of you. So, um, anyway, shout out to Nick. Yeah.
1: There, there is somebody grumpier than grumpy T as he likes to call me.
0: (laughs) Grumpy N. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, that's cool. and I, I the reason I want to ask the question is because I think a lot of people listening to this there's there's a one of the fundamental questions that I think anybody would have listening to your story is like, how on earth do you end up as the top guy at Lang? Right? And so it's interesting when we kind of go back to the start and you're like, yeah, you know, on paper, I didn't have the, the, the flashy resume like some other folks may have had. And I think this is one of those interesting examples in life that it's like, doesn't always have to just be on paper, right? Like there's different ways to get your foot in the door. And um, it seems like it is the exception rather than the rule that somebody just looks like the five-star rock style in every possible category. Yeah. Right. It's like, if that's you, then congrats you and your charmed life. But for all the rest of us, we just are normal people that have to work hard and, and come in and convince people to give us a chance. And so, um, sounds like that was a part of the, uh, the 1994 story.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I got a little fight in me. So I'm in, uh, You know, I'm a Vermonter at heart, so New Englander. I got good work ethic. My parents taught me that at a very young age, work ethic, and um so I think they saw that part and they saw my mechanical ability and problem solving, which is ultimately what we do in any job, right?
0: Yeah. So we've we've been talking a lot at Blister about like the last ten years, right, in terms of Gear and where we've been, and then we've been talking about like where we might be going in the next 10 years. I'm kind of interested to hear you talk a bit about like the mid 90s when you're getting going with the Rosignal group and the kinds of things that the group was focused on at the time that you were primarily tasked to think about. If it was predominantly race categories and race oriented equipment, or if there was already a lot of conversation at the time about, you know, looking at, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of more free ride or freestyle type of equipment.
1: So I think if you look at racing alone, um, early nineties, I mean, I think you got to kind of break the nineties up a little bit because early nineties for me, you know, early to mid nineties was still very race focused um this was also uh, i guess it was a little bit later 90s is when kind of the the shape ski for a lack of a better word came out um and this was this really kind of put racing on its head to some degree and um those were they were awesome years they were challenging years um, you know, to convince racers that this kind of shape ski thing was going to work. And, you know, we had race department skis at that time, you know, more straight. Um, and, you know, some of the race department skis were called fatties because they were a little bit, had a little bit more side cut than even the stock one did. But when the real shape came out and, and I, you know, I credit K2 for that. They probably started and took a big risk uh, with Bodie Miller at that time with the, what was that thing called? The four, the K2-4 and, and I took notice and we, we started to build a a shaped ski as well, but it was really designed for, let's say the carving public. And I started to take that and started doing testing with racers. Um, And this was a really interesting time because we would, we would, I I actually went to Mount Hood for 10 days and rented a Rosignol Lane set courses. And we did time testing with all levels of racers young kids to old kids you know some of the sponsored kids to non-sponsored kids and we we're starting to find that this this the shape ski you know the drastically shaped ski was faster than our, our race skis so we started looking at that but there was also this perception that it's a fad it's going to go away and and you know in our testing it was clear that this was the direction where we were going but then race season would roll around and kids would have a bad race on the shape ski. So they'd go back to their other ski and then they wouldn't have a good race or have a good race. So there's this kind of in-between time that was actually really interesting uh, in terms of kind of ski development, um, where we went. We found a medium that that worked. Um, you know, I think one, this is maybe a little side note, but. Our, our industry works in such a pendulum constantly in everything that we do, and 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 you you take take for example the shape ski time right the pendulum always swings all the way to the left in our industry, um, so at this time you know you would say oh that's a fourteen meter ski well this one's thirteen it's better than that one because it's one less meter so it's easier or the twelve is better than the thirteen and and if you look at uh, where we went afterwards with waist width right we had. Companies starting when free ride started to get grow bigger, that you know, we were working with, you know, 94 underfoot foot was large, and then it went to 100 and 110, 117. And then some companies said, Well, if 117 is good, let's go to 120 or you know, shit, some come. Uh, company said, if 130 is good, let's build a 145. You're almost to a snowboard, and what does the pendulum do? It swings back to like uh, a level that makes sense, somewhere between 110, 115, right? Um, today, and same thing happened with rocker. Right? We went to rocker was like. The, you know, the skis look like clown shoes for a while. And what have we done is that industries come back down again. So the pendulum constantly swings, same thing with lightweight gear, you know, five, six years ago, everybody was, you know, focused on the lightweight skis. The pendulum swung really far down. We realized that, you know what, weight isn't necessarily a bad thing in some cases. And the pendulum finds the right place, um, So I guess it's a little side note on on that comment. But I I think this concept of a pendulum in in technologies always swings hard one way. And we always tend to come back down and find, you know, a a balance somewhere.
0: So just to press you on this notion of the pendulum, I guess, though, the question then is whether we will just continue to see a cycle of swinging left to right. So I think right now we are sort of as an industry, again, total generalization, but let's see what this sounds like to you. I feel like we're starting to swing back away from like this, as you just mentioned, we try to explore some of the limits of going light, and I think that pendulum is swinging back, but if we're um, moving away from the, the, the kind of metaphor of the pendulum, What's your prediction on whether this is actually a kind of dialing in, whether it's of shapes and whether it's of weight, right, so that we won't swing back, say, in another five years to just going as crazy light as possible? What you've just said is you think, nah, history repeats itself. This will be a cycle as opposed to a dialing in. You know what I'm saying?
1: Well, I think you have you have this period of, of the the hard swing, right? Um, every brand is trying to to better the next one, and if you could provide the same performance and be lighter weight, why wouldn't you take it? Um, at least you know that's that's what we talk about, right? Um, I think there is a, a phase uh, of that swing, and then it comes back, and then you're trying to dial it in. Is it all the way back to the right? Is it in the middle, or is it still closer to the left? Right? That's the dial part. I think you're talking about. Um, and, and for me, you know, constantly, you know, new materials are coming to light and new materials provide different feelings in skis or in ski boots, um, that can, can change that, that dialing, so to speak, you know, that where you might be able to turn the dial a little bit more left to the, to the lightweight and keep the performance or in a particular ski or model, depending upon what the target is for that model, you might dial it the other direction.
0: Yep. So it's, it's interesting, right? Like on our, on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, we've just been talking a lot about bike geometry. And this could be a short-sighted thing for us to have kind of been saying, but we kind of feel like on the, on, in terms of bike geometry, things are getting kind of more and more dialed, which then it's like, okay, well, why might we be looking back now right? Say five years in the future, 10 years in the future, and saying, nah, that geometry wasn't dialed because we've made all these new innovations and the rest, you know, it, but it's, it's really difficult to imagine that right now. Yeah, that's,
1: that, that's the case. Exactly. That's the case.
0: Yeah. So keeping in that kind of mid-90s, say mid-90s to 2000. What would you identify as being like? This is where the real action was in terms of new things we were learning or big new developments.
1: Yeah, I think like if if we look at skis for example, um, I, I think sidecut has given us more than than probably anything in the industry. Um, I think it's opened the sport to more people, which I think is important. Um, it just makes skiing. Um, easier and more accessible Um, and then you know if we talk about Sidecut alone um, we also started to change the way we built skis so we started to notice that with Sidecut slowly over time we really got this and this is one of the biggest things that i talk about in development when we're skiing skis is the skis got more balanced um you didn't have to have this kind of three parts of the turn so to speak where this you know aggressive move forward uh, move to the middle and then you know kind of juice the ski to get to the next turn where we started the skis the ski ski the skis from the center to the center Right. And I think that this is what changed a ton in racing. Um, but it also started to play as we were, you know, starting to work into free ride. Um, you know, the first kind of real free ride skis, you know, like a, a bandit, if you remember those days, um, they were essentially fat GS skis in that sense. But if you look at the side cuts at that time, you know, the side cuts were, were relatively long you know, compared to, let's say, the carving skis as this thing came out. Um, But side cut still, I've always kind of said it, side cut is your friend. And uh, I know the trend is now kind of swinging back again a little bit in free ride, a little bit longer radiuses. Um, But one thing that we don't talk about enough here is that I find this happens a lot in the industry. People start to focus on one point what's the side cut or or what's the flex and whatnot. And a ski is always the sum of its parts. Your side cut has to match your torsional stiffness. It has to match the balance of the ski. If you have one of those wrong, you could take a ski that could have a great shape and make it terrible or vice versa. Um, so it's always the sum of the parts to me that makes sense where you could have a ski, for example, the soul seven is a perfect example, huge side cut, but more or less almost like a slalom ski, even in a 188, you had a short, short radius that was under the foot. And then you had, you know, kind of the taper that went back off, but that side cut again, in that case, in a free ride ski at 106, 108 underfoot, um, gave people the ability to still be able to ski that on the groomers and also help them, I think in the, you know, in softer snow as well.
0: So then let's say we're kind of focused in on ski boots again, roughly in this period, I'll let you decide how specific we get here, but I don't know, let's say something like 1995 to 2000 or even 1995 to 2005. What, in your opinion, are some of the most interesting things that we're figuring out or you guys are figuring out when it comes to ski boots?
1: So I think at that time that you're talking about, uh, ski boots had kind of come back to four buckle. Um, That was the time when everybody was, you know, trying to show some great innovation with like by injection and, you know, uh, what we call over injection. So, you know, you would inject a stiff plastic in like the skeleton and then it would be softer here and there. Um, and, you know, I think most of this helped a lot graphically, um, ultimately in technology. Uh, I mean, at that time, I think we were into it as, as you kind of mentioned before, right. We don't see the future, the pendulum swung back where I think things really started to change was a little bit later in the two thousands when, um, you know, the first project I worked on with Lang was the first RS and RX and, um, uh, I had been doing some studies back in my race day about four aft balance. I'm a big balance guy, as you can tell, as we've discussed in skis. But I'm also that way in boots. And I believe four aft balance in ski boots is really one of the most important things. And back in the day in racing, I started to feel that as the skis progressed, the boots hadn't progressed as much as the skis. So we've gotten this modern technique in skiing, this more center-to-center skiing, but the boots still had these aggressive ramp angles and aggressive forward leans, um, which, which really, you know, we could talk a whole nother episode about this concept of center of mass that I have, but you can't trick your center of mass. And, and it, it, in the sense now we were skiing center to center, we could start standing flatter and more upright. And I started testing this in the race world uh, with athletes like Lindsey Vaughn and Ted Ligeti. And we were finding that we were going flatter and flatter, more upright. It was a more efficient stance. It was easier to find uh, you know, your center again if things went wrong. Um, and you were more powerful in this position. I did this with a lot of pressuring systems to to try to put some quantitative numbers on it, but then also the feeling with some great athletes. So that helped. And I really kind of took this concept that I think the general skier can appreciate this as well. Um, because Boots hadn't kept up with the skis, that flatter, more upright stance allows you to bend the ski from the middle uh, in a more comfortable, cleaner uh, and more powerful position. So that's, I think, one of the big steps that happened is the stance uh, that we adjusted um, on that first RS and RX, and it's still the stance that we believe in uh, in Lang today. And if you look at the World Cup results, those are obviously proving themselves um, still to be valid.
0: Give us an example of some forward lean angles. Like, so when the RS and RX come out, those boots are at what?
1: Yeah, we went to
0: four degrees of ramp
1: angle, and 12 degrees of forward lean without a spoiler. We still wanted to have the ability to um, adjust the, the the what what I call the effective angle, the ankle um, angle. So with a spoiler, you could you could get to 16. Um, but if you look at older boots, and you know the funny thing is, is the way all the engineers had designed boots forever, it kind of leveled into a point where it's about six degrees of ramp angle and about 16 to 18 degrees of forward lean. And you know they would start with this and then draw their nice boot around it, um, but but nobody had ever kind of thought of connecting that stance with the ski boots and the modern
0: skiing. But so in your opinion, it's fair to say that Lang was really, you guys were kind of the first to push this new move in terms of ramp angle and forward lean to more of an upright stance.
1: Absolutely. It was a big drive for us. And it's, um, you know, I think it's, for me, I think it's one of the better changes in ski boots in 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 the last 10 to 10 years plus I guess 12 years when we first launched the RS RX
0: yeah so 12 years the RS and RX those are released this new more upright boot those two boots come out same year
1: yes they came out the same year same
0: year same time and that's roughly 2008
1: yeah, we'd already been doing it in our race boot in two thousand six. We built a new World Cup, you know, the plug boot, ninety two millimeter boot. We'd already started it there um, from the testing we'd done with racers before that. So it had already been, you know, somewhat validated. Uh, not somewhat. I knew. I know it was validated, um, and we built that into that uh, what we called the R two thousand six at that time. And and those are actually even flatter, more more. Uh, Uh, flatter in terms of the ramp angle than even our consumer boot is
0: back to your personal story here if you've moved the narrative up to about 2008 from the way you've been talking it sounds like you're just working in product design almost equal parts maybe ski and boot is that actually true Yeah, at that time and uh, until
1: two years ago, um, I was doing product development Um, in about 2007, 2008, 2007. Um, we kind of changed the way we develop product within our company. Um, in the past, it had always been done uh, by a really small team in Europe um, from uh, very French-oriented and very Italian on the boot side. And uh, we changed the way we develop where we started. I came in to be the technical guy uh, with the engineers to um, somewhat develop the boots. I guess the word is developer. I'm not an engineer. Some people would say I'm an engineer, not by schooling, but by mindset. Um, but I bring in the practical side, the skiing part of it. And so to kind of push these new ideas, it's, we created a little bit of a new team on the ski side as well as on the boot side. So when I'd go over, I'd normally go to France and test skis for a week and then go to Italy and test boots for a week and, and work with the development teams.
0: We haven't talked at all about bindings, was this something that you were also kind of in conversations with, providing some feedback on, or were they like, we'll handle the bindings, you stick to boots and and skis?
1: No, at this time. I mean, we were really trying to bring all the divisions together to kind of have a common goal. And, you know, I pushed I pushed that pretty hard um, in in the sense of this this kind of balance concept that I keep going back to. Um you know, I, uh, again, I'm not a binding engineer engineer and it takes three to four years to really develop a binding in terms of all of the mechanical and safety and all of that part. Um, but I constantly had, um, involvement with the binding side of things in terms of stances, um, of, of how we were going to launch a binding in terms of what the ramp angle should be. Wasn't always perfect, but, um, you know, we, we had a focus on it and, uh, with new developments, we tried to improve every product. So, um, but I wasn't, I would say 80 to 90% of my time was focused on skis or boots
0: how much did you personally have to do with the development of the s7 we just did a thing talking about the the single most influential ski of the past 10 years and i kind of cheated this a little bit in terms of timelines but i kind of said the move from the s7 to the soul 7 what did your involvement look like let's start first just with the s7
1: So the S7 was the project uh, for Rossinol at the time, you know, right before the S7, Rossinol had kind of hit a little bit of a, uh, uh, we were kind of on the lower part of our, you know, brand cycle, product cycle. Um, I started, I came from the race department to product development. My first ski project was actually the Classic 80. Um, I don't know if you remember that ski. It was more of a front front frontside ski, but that was my first ski. Um, and, you know, part of that project was to, to kind of go back to the basics, uh, you know, metal layers, wood core, the whole deal. Um, and then the year after we started to focus on the, on the S7 and we wanted to get pretty radical in a sense. And I remember one of the first briefings where we said we wanted to build a canoe. That was my. That was the terms I said, you know, um, or, or, or the the words that I used. I said, "Let's build a canoe." You know, how can we build a canoe? And um, uh, I would say that at this time I was relatively new in development, even though all the years I'd been involved in racing and 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 working with the development teams on concepts and ideas. Um, really, I, I, I would give the nod to our snowboard. Um, designer at the time with the s7 um he kind of took the comment of the canoe concept um rocker and uh you know i i also brought in the concept and you know here's what a lot of people don't talk about about the s7 or the soul 7 is that here's where side cut was your friend i mean a 180 in that ski if i remember right had a uh, 16 or 17 meter radius underneath the foot. So that's a pretty tight radius.
0: Now, why did you say canoe in particular, as opposed to like, you know, boat hull or that kind of more general thing? Like, did you have a dream and you woke up in the middle of the night, like you were paddling around in a canoe and there was just this loose feel? Like, I'm just curious. I've never, I've never heard that story. Like S7 inspired by canoe,
1: Well, I wouldn't say it was inspired by a canoe, but this was the the terminology that I used when I was trying (laughs) to explain, you know, you know, again, I'm working with engineers who speak French or what we like to call uh, French English, franglais. (laughs) So, you know, you have to kind of, I always use terms that, that work well for everybody to kind of get like at least a picture in their head. So I don't think it was a dream in any sense. I had kind of a concept of uh, of what I think the shape should look like, which if you look at an old, you know, if you take out the side cut in the middle of the thing, looked a little bit like a canoe, and you know the rocker that was involved was, uh, you know, canoe shape. So I kind of had this kind of vision that that you know if we built something that looked so, kind of like this, um, that we could kind of put together kind of the skiability, the powder skiing part that we wanted, you know, and the big part was was probably more in the tail at that time. I think pintails were kind of around in the market then. Um, and you know, I had this concept of that, uh, that, you know, if you had more of that shape in the back that you could drop the tail and what I would, what I call change your, your, uh, angle of attack in the snow. So you're almost, you know, like a boat that's not quite on plane and that way it's a little more, um, you know, settled in and your attack is a little more controllable. And I think that's what the the S7 and then the Soul 7 after brought to the market was, is kind of controllability in snow. The ability to be able to shut down your
0: speed easily. This next question is going to be dedicated to our senior editor, Sam Shaheen, um, because he just still... I think he's the world's biggest vocal defender of the Soul 7 still. And so I I want to hear you talk about this move from the S7 to the Soul 7, that development. Were you surprised by the success of that ski? Were you like, nah, we saw that coming? You know, in terms of the things that we had sort of, like that we kind of proved, um, proof of concept maybe with the S7, we, we just thought this was going to, this was going to be a a slam dunk for us.
1: I mean, I think, you know, I think it was a perfect storm, right? The market was ripe for it. Free ride was at like just starting to really take off in the image. I mean, the amount of people skiing around in the East Coast on a, on an S on a Soul 7, you you know, is somewhat staggering where, um, uh, you know, so you had that on trail performance too. Uh, it's strange in, in ski testing, we have s- some products take 25, 30 prototypes to get right. And you're just constantly tweaking it until you get it right. I mean, I'll be honest with you when you test skis. I mean, 70% of the stuff I ski on, I'm just happy to get to the bottom. Um, you know, but 70% there occasionally...
0: tor that's a, oh, I, that's yeah. a big
1: number. It's a big number, but you know, the key is you're shooting for that 30% and we always get there. It's just whether you have to do. You know, 30 prototypes to get there and ski on 30 prototypes. Or whether you have a few skis, and I think there are three, two skis in my life where we got on either the first pair of prototypes or the second pair of prototypes. And within the second turn, you're like, holy shit, we got something here. And then when you're able to have the time, when it happens that quickly, you have the time to tweak it even more and tweak it even more. Um, and I think Airtip at that time brought so much um, to the market, you know, is this concept of taking these big fat skis and bringing that center of mass in, and again, allowing you to be even more balanced, which again, we know is one of the big things for me.
0: Back to the ski boot question, then 2008, we've talked about a change in ramp angle and forward lean. Is there an element of boot design at this point that you think tends to be overlooked the most? Like it's often a statement and there may have been one or two of us at Blister very recently making a comment like, you know, Alpine boots haven't really changed in like what, 30 to 40 years. And I would envision like someone saying that to you and you have like a mini seizure or something. So I guess I'd curious to know what do you think maybe tends to get overlooked in terms of what has been happening in the development of ski boots and and specifically alpine boots at this point? Anything come to mind?
1: Well, I, 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 again, I go back to a product being the sum of its parts, and I think where the boot industry is headed now is, is that we're getting more and more performance out of better fitting boots where, you know... Going back years and years and years, you had to kind of decide a sacrifice to some degree. You know, if I'm going to get the skiability I want, I'm going to have to suffer on, on on the fit. And I think that's something that I focused on and Lang focuses on is this kind of where those two converge, fit and performance converge. um, um And, you know, I have a saying that performance is nothing without fit and fit is nothing without performance, meaning meaning that you could have a boot that fits tight like a race boot. You know, you're just dying in the thing, but it skis like you're a champion. Or you could have the opposite. You could have a boot that fits like a marshmallow, but you just move around in the boot uh, and you don't really have any control, more or less you're a passenger in the boot. Um, so I, th- I think that that comment, uh, you know, performance is nothing without fit and fit is nothing without performance is one of our goals at Lang is is to find that, that place where you have that comfy fit, but you can still get all you want out of the boot. And I, and I think that that it's a combination of the two, right? Because it's not just about the fit. It's not just about the performance. It's, it's finding kind of all those, some of the parts to work together to give you that kind of end result.
0: So, in terms of product history, would you want to single out a specific boot where you thought this is where this is kind of a benchmark product, you know, or a watershed moment in terms of product development at Lang, specifically on the fit front that you've just been talking about?
1: Well, I think the first one, obviously, was the RS and the RX. Um, they share the mold um, back at that time. Um, but I think that that w- kind of brought everything together, it brought stance together. Um, we came with, I think, one of the most uh, anatomical shapes in the market, but still giving you he-hold. And then we focused on when we built that boot and when I build product, I like to look at product and, and, and I don't know how to say this, not in a totally negative way, but I like to say, OK, what are the problems to solve? Right. Um, and at that time, I said, OK, in the consumer market, in the skier market, what what's a deal breaker? Right. Boots, unfortunately, most of them are sold in a ski shop where it's 60 degrees and you don't really get to ski on them. So you're making a leap of faith in some degree. So the only thing you can connect to is the fit. So, at that time, I started with okay, what's deal breaker number one? Well, the toe box is deal number one, right? If you slide your foot in and your toe box is crammed, you're already like, take it off, I don't want it. Okay, so how can we fix that? So, we changed the way we construct our liners in that sense to make a one piece toe box with a one piece tongue, so no attachment across the top of the toes. We really focused on a problem that's plagued the industry for a gazillion years, which is the liners are always short-lasted and not matching the shell. We really spent a lot of time working on making sure that when we put the liner in the boot that it's not too long, but also not too short. Um, So I think that that's that's one point for me where you kind of saw Lang make a huge jump. And, And I mean, for me, uh, I mean, I mean, I guess shameless Lang plug, but I, I actually believe this. I'm a super traditional boot guy. Um, I believe in performance. I believe in real deal plastics, um, and I think dual core is is something that was. It took us f- more or less three and a half to four years to get it right. We almost abandoned it, and when we got it right, it was one of those aha moments. And I think dual core is one of the most exciting things to happen in ski boots um, in the, in plastic in the last 40 years. Um,
0: Let me ask you about power straps. I kind of think that when it comes to ski boots in terms of things that are maybe given by the public the least amount of attention, I, I don't know, When it comes to ski boots, I think it's either the contender for like, we as consumers just don't pay any attention to this. When it comes to an Alpine boot, I think the answer is either the liner or buckles or the power strap. What is the most overlooked characteristic of a ski boot?
1: Well, uh, let me me ask the question to you. Do you ski with a booster strap?
0: Well, yes. And I love them personally.
1: Yeah. And that's fair. Um uh it's it's a great product and I think it's a little bit personal uh feel uh to some degree. Um more or less when I look at a power strap, for me what the power strap does is actually allows me to have the liner and the upper cuff move as one unit. So for me that that fl- that movement is more fluid. Um you know, if you ski for example with a loose you know, loosen the power strap. You have this what I call a sense of false flex at the top, where you're actually moving the liner in the shell. So you have this movement over the top. So ultimately, I believe that the 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 power strap is what kind of combines the shell and the liner at the top um, wrap to move as one unit. Um, that, that's my that's my personal feeling. Um, now, I've, I've worked with tons of racers over the years um, who, who, who like that feeling of the elasticity of, of, a, of, let's say, a strap like that and that rebound that it gives you. Um, so I don't think there's a right or a wrong there. I think that's a little bit of a personal preference.
0: Yeah, and in fact, I had Matt Manzer on Gear 30, and we were kind of going over this exact same question, right? Kind of a, a static power strap versus an elastic power strap and he very much wanted to make that same claim um the like there isn't a right or wrong here this is very much a personal this is a question of personal preference and just which feel you prefer sounds like you two are in agreement on that one. Oh, i would say so
1: you know, I mean, I think everything is a little bit personal feel, right? In the sense, you know, some guys like to tune their skis at three degrees on the side. Some like it at two, some dull tips and tails, some don't, you know, it's um that, you know, that's the tuning part, I uh, suppose, you know, the personalized tuning um, and the feel that you're looking for.
0: Well, I think I want to close out this portion of our conversation maybe asking you for some, call them design predictions, right? So Tor, if we're talking again at the start of 2030, right? What's your prediction now? Let's start with skis. Um, we've just been, again, doing this on Blister and giving out our own predictions about where we suspect gear might be headed or what What things will have happened 10 years from now and just kind of general ski industry predictions we've been doing both I'm curious to get your take we'll for right now we'll say either on the ski front or I'll let you be more general if you want in terms of ski industry stuff 10 years from now what do you have
1: uh, if I told you that I'd have to kill you
0: um. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried you might say that
1: <laughs> Um, you know, I, I still think there's going to be some development in materials. Um, I, I do believe that's the case. I think new materials bring new shapes, new ideas, new concepts to light. Um, it's hard to imagine 10 years from now. I mean, it's a little bit the job I'm in to do now, right? Is to think five years, 10 years out. Um, you know, I, I I feel like things are relatively stable right now. Um, I anticipate them staying relatively stable for the next few years. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see again, I'm, I'm a traditionalist, so take this with, with that lens on, so to speak. Um, I, I don't, I don't really see the, the growth Um, uh, growth is not the right word Um, I feel like our our industry is very trend driven and not always for the right reasons Um, you know it's to be in the in the cool mode you guys test more of this stuff so maybe you have a different view but you know this concept of um, the pin slash alpine do everything one ski quiver thing to me Um, I think it's more of a cool factor. Not a lot of people are really using it the way, you know, I think the product is designed for, Um, you know, so there I think there could be a trend to give up alpine bindings for these kind of hybrid bindings. But again, as, as I say, the industry is going to make that swing back. It always does. It did it in ski boots from, you know, going to, three buckles or rear entry or mid entry back to four buckle overlap boots, um, skis we've gone, you know, swung a lot of ways with weight, uh, materials, whatever it may be. And we've swung back in shapes and whatnot. Um, so I don't know. I think that, that that's, I guess, about the comments I would have on, on your question there.
0: So in other words, you would predict that 10 years from now we will maybe have gone through a period, you know, say in the next year two three where there we might see more emphasis on like the 50-50 binding, right? You can ski it inbounds, you can take it backcountry. But what I hear you saying is you actually think that will 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 maybe experiment a bit more with that, but 10 years from now we might be back into more um, dedicated gear, dedicated inbounds, bindings, dedicated touring bindings. Not trying to put words in your mouth, but I am trying to get you on record so that we're all on record. And then we can all just go back and, you know, make fun of those of us who got everything wrong. No pressure, no pressure.
1: No, I I mean, I would agree with your, your assessment of what I've had to say. You know, I, I, think, you know, in the end, uh, you know, it, it's like bikes, right? You have a road bike and you have a mountain bike. Uh, the industry came out with cross bikes, but do you buy a cross bike? I never owned a cross bike. You probably didn't either, right? Um, because it didn't do either very well. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's a driver when you need a driver and there's a putting wedge when you need a putting wedge. <laughs>
0: nice golf analogy coming in at the very yeah. end. I didn't, I'm, I didn't, I'm not, I'm not even a
1: golfer. <laughs> I don't even golf. I, um, but you know, I, 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 think there's one thing that, that, that we see right now. And, and, uh, I'm amazed at how many people throw, throw it out of the window to kind of be in the trend, but it's this concept of in skiing in your product, whether it's boots, bindings, skis of when you're a passenger or when you're, you a driver, Right. If you want the lightweight setup and the trendy setup to do a little everything, you know, you you start to move a little bit more to that passenger part where you're a passenger in your gear. And, you know, when when I think about skiing, again, I'm a traditionalist, so let's take that into consideration. Um, And I'm not trying to stifle uh, new designs and new energy here. But in the end, I feel like there's the right tool for the right job and, you know. I guess that's how I would end that 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 statement is. I feel like, you know, if you're going to alpine ski, you alpine ski. If you're going to tour, you tour. Um, the product that's in the middle, I think, makes sense in a lot of places um, for some people. But I think in the end, you're gonna you're gonna arrive at the tool for the job. The best tool for the job, I guess, is a better way to say it.
0: Hmm. All right, Tor. Well, the most important question that I'm going to ask you. In this portion of the conversation, you probably aren't aware of this, but in the last several weeks, we have come around and all, everybody has, we've all decided at Blister that Telemark is about to make a massive resurgence in popularity. This is our hot take on the coming decade. I wanna know did you see this coming? Because we're all convinced now this is true. And two, don't you think it's time for Lang to get into the Telemark boot game? <laughs>
1: um, I did not see I did not see it coming, but I did see a few months ago a bumper sticker that said "Your boyfriend cares that I tell you," so I thought that that was a <laughs> I thought that that might be it. Now that now I'm connecting some some thoughts, I thought the bumper sticker was pretty funny. That's so a
0: pretty good bumper sticker, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What are you, you got to throw your hat. We need your opinion on this. Throw your hat into the ring on, on the, the state of telemark in the next 10 years.
1: Jeez, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not really connected to that, that part of, uh, skiing. I, uh, again, there's always, uh, it would have to grow quite considerably to, to get into that. I mean, again, I, you know, I think you've probably talked with Nick about this, but boot development. Um, it's about one point five million euros to develop a mold of boots, so that's a lot of telly boots to sell.
0: It is a lot. But Tor, I think you're the head of Lang now. So you could you literally personally could have a whole lot to do with our prediction in the rise of telly. <laughs> Plus you keep saying that you're a traditionalist. What's more traditional than telemarking? Yeah, that's a good point, right? That's a good point. Man, I don't think
1: I don't think I've tellied in 15 years, but
0: wait, but you used to?
1: I dabbled in it. You were a dabbler, I would say.
0: Okay, a dabbler. I, just, I just for the blister audience and everyone's listening, you know, everyone listening to this, I, I just I'm working on them. I'm I, not that I've ever tellied, but so this is part of you know, we'll see where my own personal journey goes with this, but um. You know, I, I'm trying people like uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying.
1: What What I would say is I have mad respect for people that telly. I think they are truly impressive skiers and um, I think they're beautiful to watch. Um, I'm not really sure the market's coming back there, but if it does, we'll keep our eye on it.
0: OK, well, I appreciate you throwing your hat into that that ring. But this is this has been an unexpected topic around here. And uh, who knows? We'll we'll just. We'll just now, I guess, kind of sit back and watch what unfolds over the, the next 10 years in terms of the future of telly. But uh, appreciate you weighing in, in on that one, Tor. Um, <laughs> that concludes kind of the portion of our conversation that's a bit about your own trajectory and some of the history of product design and development. Thank you for giving us this backstory and in, in history lesson. And uh, now we're going to talk about the present and the future. Great. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, you should be sure to subscribe to the Blister Podcast, share this episode with your friends, and leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes. And don't forget to check out what is effectively part two of this conversation with Tor over on our Gear 30 podcast. Now, I want to say thanks to Tor for these conversations. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing these episodes. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, please take good care out there. We will talk to you again next week.